Welcome to episode three of the NHS Armed Forces Health podcast, a series that aims to help you, the Armed Forces community, access the plethora of NHS services available. In today's episode, we're looking specifically at GPs, at choosing a GP when you leave service, registering for one and how to be proactive in your medical needs. For this, I'm joined by Dr Jonathan Leach, NHS England Medical Director for Armed Forces and Veterans Health, Paul Finlay, Director of CSR for Epic Risk Management, and Kat Dolby-Walsh, Clinical Director of the Yeovil Primary Care Network. We like to begin each podcast with the same question to each person, and that is, why are you involved in the AFPPV and why are you here today? Um, So I'm going to ask this question, first of all, to Paul. Uh, Yes, I'm I'm involved with the the PPV and I have been for, for a number of years now. And I first got involved as I was very passionate about ensuring that veterans were getting the best possible care and that the NHS was hearing um, firsthand what 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 was needed um, from veterans and their families um, and serving personnel on the ground. And in my previous role to what I'm in now working for uh, Bless Me the Limbless Veterans, I was very much um, at the kind of vanguard of hearing predominantly from those suffering from physical um, injuries, but just kind of understanding the kind of needs of, of veterans um, as and when it was happening in the evolving space we were, we were moving in at the time. Brilliant. Thank you. Jonathan, how about you? Yeah, well, it's very clear for me there's there's a sort of very personal thing to this as well as uh, at my job at the moment. So the very personal thing is that I was in the army 25 years and served around the world of which of my 25 years in uniform, 17 were overseas. It included operational tours in Northern Ireland, Yugoslavia and uh, Iraq. I also visited Afghanistan and I sort of worked around And then since I left uh, the military as a doctor, um, I've been heavily involved through NHS England in terms of design and delivery of NHS services for the military community. It's not just for veterans, it's for the whole military community. And also trying to make sure that the voice and the needs of the military community, wherever they are and whoever they are, um, are taken into account in terms of how we deliver uh, very important services to them and their families. Thank you. There's lots of great points there and we'll delve into some of those as we go on. And finally, Kat, how about you? I am served in the army for 18 years and I have rheumatoid arthritis. So I joined the lived experience group. And from that, it alighted an interest in the veterans that were living in Yeovil and uh, developing support for them and many of them with unmet needs. So that's why I'm here. Brilliant. Thank you. So, Paul, how different is the medical care system outside of the military? Um, I mean, Alice, I think, I think it's very different. For me personally, I, I can't ever remember a time before I joined the military. You know, I joined at 16. I can't ever remember accessing my local GP. You know, it's just one of those things. I don't remember as a child ever going to the doctor's. Um, and then when you're serving, it's one of those one of those things you take for granted that it's always accessible. I mean, if you're serving in the military and you need to go and see your doctor for any reason, you literally go to your line manager, you know, your troop sergeant, troop staff sergeant, whoever it may be. You say you want to go sick, you walk down to the medical centre, you wait in line, and then you're seen by by your GP. And the access to care is is immediate. 
you know, even if that's, you know, primary care, secondary care. And then if you look at kind of the circumstance that I found myself in after losing one of my legs in Afghanistan, being at Headley Court, again, the the access to prosthetics care and physiotherapy, you know, I was having four physio sessions a day. I was I was able to just walk down or, or in my wheelchair, wheel down to the prosthetics and, and literally just say, I need something tweaked. And one of the prosthetists would take it into a room, do his magic, come back, my leg would be fixed. And then you go through the kind of medical discharge process and all of a sudden you're back in, you know, your home community and you've got to register with a GP who, you know, who probably hasn't, you haven't dealt with before because why would you? You're serving the military. And, and all of a sudden your expectations of what you were receiving at one point to what you're now eligible to receive is very, very different. And, you know, I think for a lot of veterans, those expectations probably aren't managed very well on transition. They come out expecting the same level of, of care and support and treatment that they received once when they were in service. And the reality is it's just not practical. You know, it's not practical that you can just turn up unannounced at your doctors and get an appointment immediately or turn up at your prosthetic centre and walk through the door and hand over your prost- to your prosthetist and and he'll just go away and fix it. You know, that just isn't that just isn't feasible. Um so it's so it's hugely different. Um but what what for me has has seen as has not been different is the the level of the, the level of ability. You know, I think the prosthetists I've got now are just as good, if not better, than what I had when I was at Headley Court. My GP now is just as good, if not better, than what I had when I served. Um so the level of support is different, but the ability in which they try to support I think is the same and the desire to support you exists just because you can't get an appointment for five weeks doesn't mean that your GP doesn't want to doesn't want to help it's just you know that's the, the realities of of the situation we find ourselves in so so yeah I do you know I do see why people struggle and um, I think there's a lot to be done there in terms of managing expectation. And just quickly who should be managing those expectations? I think it's a bit. Of, a, it's a two-way. It's a two-way street, Alice. I think that the the MOD upon discharge. You know, nobody explained to me. Um, you know, bear in mind I was discharged nearly ten years ago, so I'm sure um, the MOD has evolved slightly. But nobody explained to me what to expect upon discharge. So you know, I came out expecting that if I needed a prosthetics appointment, I could just go and get one. I, I wasn't told that I might have to wait six weeks. Which, when you go from being able to get one within ten minutes to waiting six weeks, you know that is that is a game changer. And um, nobody explained that I would need to phone my G. I would need to phone up at eight in the morning to get a doctor's appointment between eight and half eight for the same day. You know, so all these little nuances actually, if somebody taking the time to to explain the realities of the situation, would have probably made my transition much easier. You know, and I left with relatively uncomplex needs you know even though I lost a leg you know it was a below knee amputation so you know again it's the paper cut of amputations if you listen to most 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 them most amputees in the military um so you know my needs were very 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 um small compared to a lot of other other um, men and women who who leave the service so so I can imagine if you've got complex PTSD if you've got complex physical or mental needs having that explained to you would only moving that transition um, out, out of the military and into your kind of your, your, your local GP practice and beyond. 
Jonathan, I want to bring you in here. We've heard from Paul sort of from the veteran, the armed force community side, but how about you as a, as, as a GP? You know, registering with a GP is clearly very important, but how do you go about trying to find or choose the right GP for you? Okay, so a lot of people will speak to friends and family. Um, Some people will choose on the basis of, you know, the closest that's to them. Um, um, And obviously there are sort of various websites that will give things like information on patient satisfaction surveys. Now, there are some problems with those, but they will give you an indication, if you like. So um, people will choose that way. Um, the vast majority of practices are, have an open list, so you can just go along. There are very few where they have a closed list. So the NHS practices are obviously there for family members in the main and for veterans. Veterans would have a, 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 a an entitlement to register with an NHS GP. And I think probably the main thing is register before you need it. That's probably one of the main, main messages the number of people I've spoken with who say, oh, I'm not registered because I don't need one. Well, to be honest, you don't know what's around the corner. And it's much better that people register early. Um, And frequently what we do find is that somebody will come in with maybe something relatively minor or we'll deal with something relatively minor. But actually behind the scenes, they want to talk about something which is more significant. And actually that, you know, sometimes they'll come in sort of, do they like Dr. Leach? Do they, you know, or don't they like Dr. Leach? Um, and they're to a certain extent testing, testing us out. And that that's accepted. That's not, that's not specific to the military community. That that's that's quite normal. And then perhaps they'll then come back another time um, to actually then uh, sort of discuss maybe some some bigger concerns. So registering early. And before um, you need it is probably important. If possible, we strongly recommend that people register prior to leaving the services if you know where you're going to live so that actually you've got all that in hand um, in the event that that you need it. Um, And then the other thing perhaps is that what we've been doing um, with my friend uh, Robin Simpson, who's uh, uh, another ex-army doctor, We've now got a, a network in England. We're building this. We've now got a thousand, just over a thousand GP surgeries who have a clinical lead, such as myself, who have an interest in the military. It's uh, in partnership with the Royal College of GPs. And whilst there will be some people as they leave the services who will say, oh, I don't want to see a military doctor, never again. Actually, um, since we we did this as our surgery in Bromsgrove here in Worcestershire, um, we've actually um, registered quite a lot of military or ex-military personnel. And what they do is that they say that they are ex-military. And it's not just me as the doctor. It's actually the other staff, particularly people like the receptionist and the other doctors and nurses, having a better understanding of the needs of the military um, and their families to a degree, and also what may be different um, in terms of looking after them. So um, a, a really important initiative in terms of trying to provide better care and a more specific care to the military community from the NHS end. Okay, thank you. And are those the veteran-friendly practices? If I was an Armed Forces member, how do I go and find out where these are? Yeah, so so the, uh, the Royal College of GPs is the organisation that's coordinating this on behalf of NHS England. And they're all listed on the Royal College of GPs website. 
So, um, so they're all there. And, um, you know, so my surgery is there. And, um, you know, people register because they would like to have a surgery which has a more detailed knowledge of the needs of the military community and especially veterans. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. What are primary care networks and why or what is useful for veterans to know about them? Primary care networks are groups of practices that work together. It's an NHSEI initiative to bring um, support to practice sustainability and address health inequalities. And I guess where they are starting to work for veterans is around health inequalities. So the practices, the five practices in Yeovil are working towards being a veteran-friendly primary care network, which will mean that um, if you move to that Yeovil area, any practice that you join will be part of this, the veteran-friendly network. If you think of a GP practice, it works in independently of other practices. By bringing five practices together, you're able to provide population-based care. And if you think of the uh, veteran population of Yeovil, you're then able to address the needs within that cohort as a one. It's really, it feels as a veteran and a, and a nurse, um, it feels really healthy to be able to provide a service of equity across Yeovil as opposed to um, through a single practice. So we're really excited about that. One of the things that, because um, we've, where we've got in Bromsgrove, we've got four big surgeries. Now, the, 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 the veteran accredited surgery is mine. But by working across the town, and if, if you like, my colleagues know that we have this interest in our specific surgery, and I do specifically. So whilst, yes, I will see those patients who are registered with us, what it also means, and I get this quite frequently, I get colleagues from other surgeries who say, Jonathan, I've got this veteran and she or he has these problems. Is there anything specific that we could do? So I'm used as a resource for the wider network. Um, and I think that's really important because we as GPs have to know about lots and lots of things. Um, and certainly I refer internally to, you know, colleagues within the surgery, you know, all the time who have a more detailed knowledge about particular issues than I do. And it's the other way around in this. And so uh, not infrequently, uh, colleagues within my surgery will uh, advise, ask if somebody conceives me, if they've got mental health problems, PTSD. So if you like, that's my clinical area. But similarly, for the neighbouring surgeries, um, they I will get these phone calls saying, Jonathan, I've got this veteran. Um, is there anything else that we can be doing? So it works much, much more as a network, as the name implies. And what's really important here is um, making sure that it particularly it's not it's the approach which is important. But then if a referral is needed, that actually they're referred to the best place first time rather than actually sort of going from one to another to another and playing ping pong. And so that that sort of approach is very much embedded. Okay, so collaboration and communication is absolutely key, um, is what you've just said there. But you also mentioned about the approach. So 
Paul, I just want to bring you in here from a veteran's perspective. What do they need to get across? What's, you know, their approach in the first meeting with with the GP? And also, what are the stumbling blocks? I think the first um, the first approach has to try and, where possible, be, be as honest and, and transparent as one can be. And I know that that's not easy because a lot of veterans, um, you know, may not trust their GP on that first visit. You know, so to to just completely unload and open up to to someone who you, you know, for, in my opinion, wrongly feels won't understand the military. You know, I get I get I get that a lot. Saying you know, civvies don't understand, civvies don't get it. Um, well, do you know what? They probably don't get what you've been through, but what they do get is your need for support. You know, because in that sense, you're no different from any other any other patient. You know, that GP nurse or nurse are there to support you to the best of their ability. And um, it just so happens, you know, that that you once served in the military, and you may be entitled or you may may be eligible to access other resources that civilian patients won't. But that doesn't detract from the fact that they just want to help you. For me, the most successful, the reason my GP and I got on so well is that first that first session that we had, that first appointment, we were both just honest. He was absolutely honest that he'd never dealt with a military amputee. And he kind of said, you know, I will be led by you in terms of you tell me what you need and then I'll see how I can make that happen. And the first thing was moving limb centre because I'd been allocated a limb centre that was just a satellite that was only open one day a week. And I said, well, actually, I work in central London. I'd rather go to a, a different limb centre that I could access five days a week. And and he, you know, he sorted that transfer out. Um, but I think that's the most important thing is is just um, just being transparent. You know, don't, for veterans, don't go in with a negative mindset or a closed mindset. You know, try and be open to the fact and the reality is the person in front of you wants to help, embrace it. Um, and, you know, trust will obviously be established over time. Um but that's, yeah, for me, that's the most important thing. You know, a, a GP sat in front of you will not know what's going on in your physical, mental space. He won't know what's going on in your private life, what's going on at home, if you've got other issues at work, unless you tell them. You know, there's not a magic eight ball sat there. So just be honest with your consultant, with your GP, with your nurse, with your, with your physio, whoever the clinician that's trying to support you, just be upfront. You know, they've the reality is they've probably heard it before or heard something similar or they know someone that has, as Jonathan previously mentioned. There's a net there's networks out there that, that, that people can connect into. So don't don't feel like you're you're an isolated case. You know, there's there's always been people before you. Jonathan, from a GP perspective, what do you need to know from a veteran? Yeah, I I agree absolutely with Paul. So, you know, people being straight with you. Um I was reflecting on two things. Firstly, trust a trusting relationship with your doctor um, is really important. Um, you know, it's the same with your nurse or your pharmacist. So, you know, the commonest reasons for people to be medically discharged from the military are firstly things like musculoskeletal problems, back problems, knee problems, hip problems, then problems with hearing, and then thirdly, mental health. Now, I regularly see other people with musculoskeletal problems. I've recently, for example, seen a, a, a 42-year-old gentleman who's a builder who is really struggling because his back problem is such that he's having real difficulty, you know, carrying things on, you know, on the building site. Actually, the issues for that builder as a 42-year-old gentleman who is has a family to support are actually the clinical bits are the same as if it was retired Sergeant Smith 
who was also having long-term back problems. So, you know, if you like, the clinical bits are the same. And then what we will do is work with, you know, the person to try and understand what the problems are, um, to look to see whether or not we can help in terms of mobility, physiotherapy, pain relief. And so what I did with this gentleman is no different. You know, I sat down with him. I listened, actually, because it, that's probably the most important thing. I listened. I examined him. I then got him physiotherapy. We dealt with his sick note um, and actually sort of really put him at the center of this. Now, that's exactly the same approach I would do for a 42-year-old, you know, ex-sergeant or, you know, because actually that's just being a good doctor. Now, where it gets slightly different is if, um, so, you know, Sergeant Smith said, well, it was when I, you know, I was parachuting and I came down on Salisbury Plain. Um, but actually, in some ways, it's not that different to the builder saying, look, you know, I was on top of a ladder and I fell down on, you know, on my back. In some ways, it's the same. But, you know, so it's actually listening and really taking into account the needs of the patient. Um, and then what can be different is where you may invoke the, the Armed Forces Covenant in terms of accessing some of the more specialist services, which I know we'll come on to. And there's a thing in, in medicine, you know, sort of it, it's rather tritely for the doctor, it's shut up, which is let, let, listen, you know, know something. So know your stuff and care. And that's by Professor David Haslam. And actually as a model, um, you know, it was really right. So, you know, this is from the doctor side. So shut up and let the patient tell their story because they will. Listen, don't interrupt. Know your stuff, if you like, and be competent and care. And I think that's a really good way of emphasising and summarising what we, we're trying to do as healthcare professionals. And it doesn't matter whether you're a veteran or you're a reservist. So there may be specific things. So there may be occupational elements. So, um, you know, if, for example, I saw somebody who was um, in the reserves and um, let's use the same example, had, you know, a very uh, difficult back, which was very painful, then clearly, you know, if they were expected to go on exercise that weekend and to be carrying weight and things like this, there may be very specific occupational elements. And so, yes, we do need to consider those. Um, but a lot of it is the knowledge and understanding, particularly in mental health, about the, the, what they've been through. Um, so if, for example, uh, I, I've got quite a number of the veterans I see who've got significant mental health problems as a consequence of you know, things they were involved with as a child, unfortunately, and made worse by things in service. There's no question of that. And actually... What I'm able to do, and they, and they, you know, one of them said, "Oh yeah, you know, uh, I was in Camp Bastion." So, yep, okay, got it. Yeah, I've been there, and you've got that immediate link. Or I remember there was one veteran who um, he was talking about being in Northern Ireland, and I said, "Yep, okay, you know, I served in Armagh um, and South Armagh. You know, I, I, I remember that time very well." The, the, he didn't need to explain it to me. So sometimes having somebody, not all the practices would have this, but having somebody who's got a similar experience, you know, we're on the same page and they don't need to explain the context of what the work was like and, you know, what the risks that we were taking, because I was taking very similar risks to themselves. We've got a really clear understanding of how to access your GP and what, what you need to be saying. 
Paul, I just want to move the conversation on a bit now. It seems there is a bit of a difference in people actively seeking help. So that could be mental or physical, depending on whether it's a traumatic combat injury or a chronic degenerative or mental health issue that emerges later. Why do you think this is? And what advice would you give people who perhaps feel like they don't deserve help? Yeah, I mean, this is something, Alice, that I came across quite quite frequently at Blesma was um, there always seemed to be two camps and there seemed to be those who were, you know, medically discharged due to combat um, combat injuries um, and then those who um, either suffered their injuries, their illness, um, um, whatever condition they had post-discharge or during service, but as, not as a result of active service. Um, I was always of the opinion that it, it, it really didn't matter. You know, the fact that you once upon a time put on the uniform and and signed that blank cheque, you know, that you made a commitment um, to the country and ultimately you you then deserve the support that you can get regardless of, of how, when, why you were injured. Um, but that doesn't, that just because that was how I felt, didn't mean it, that was reality. Um, and I used to have many conversations with veterans and still do, who, especially those predominantly suffering with mental health, but feel that because they've not been physically injured, that, that actually they should just put up, shut up and go back in their box. Um, and I'm constantly encouraging people to, to tap into the services that we offer. Um, the, the reality is, you know, some veterans get quite um, quite defensive. You know, they, they, they wonder why these services exist for those who haven't been combat injured or combat wounded they, they, they don't necessarily understand that you know on a different day they may not have been blown up and they may have been involved in RTA you know so, so that kind of mutual understanding that anything that's happened to anybody can happen to any one of us at any time um so you know it's again looking at through, through a kind of closed mindset and trying to be um trying to show empathy where where, where someone's in a different situation from you but the biggest thing is that that genuinely the, the charities out there, the NHS, you know, GP practices, they don't care. You know, that is the re- that is the genuine reality. You look at somebody like Blesma, they do not care how you lost a limb. That that just doesn't it doesn't come into their psyche. It doesn't come into the support officers' um, considerations when they're offering support. I don't. I think you know. I'm not going to speak for Jonathan. He can do that himself. But I'm pretty sure it doesn't matter to a GP why you've got mental health issues or why you're suffering from, um, you know, MSK injuries or whatever it may be. The fact is that you need support and that's why they're in the position they're in to support So that. just go and get so help. It doesn't matter. Just go and get help. That's I know, really I know, I know this sounds quite tough. I, I, don't, I think this sounds quite tough no, love, it's but, great. you know, just yeah. get on with it. You know, the longer you procrastinate and get in support, trust me on this, the, the, the things will not get better on their own. You know, if you need... If you need detailed support, then you have to you have to go and ask for it because the likelihood of someone coming and just offering it to you is very very slim. You know, there's you know, so so yeah, that's that's the, the kind of way I look at it. Which um, probably not the most PC, but it's it's the most um, it's the most uh, effective. Yeah, I think there's a I, I I absolutely agree with Paul. There's a difference from when you're serving, when essentially you know your boss will tell you, you know, your back's not right. You need to go and see the doc. And you're told, actually. The difference as a civilian is that 
uh, that nobody will tell you. And actually, in many cases, and this has been particularly as we've been looking at the design of the mental health services in particular, going earlier is much better. Because the problem is that once a lot of the mental health problems get really ingrained um, and they're there for a long time, or even a bad back to a certain extent, that what happens is that they get worse. And then actually it makes treatment worse and less effective. And actually that's the same across lots of things in medicine. It's not specific to this. You know, if, if somebody had a, a lump in the breast or a lump in the testicle, leaving it would mean that as and when you know you come to address it, it's it, it it's a more difficult um matter to deal with and treat. So so actually there's a there's a truism there, but nobody is going to nobody's going to do it for you. Now we know that in medicine a lot of this is actually your, your other half will say to you, you know, you know, you need to go and see the doc. And we know this that frequently it's the other half or a family member who is look you know you need to uh you need to get this sorted and so listen to family members because often they know perhaps uh better than yourself sometimes um and and actually you know do go along and seek help um and there are lots of different avenues of help whether or not that's actually now open access counselling, open access physiotherapy in many parts of the country, as well as obviously through uh, practice nurses. We all have very able, very competent practice nurses who often do a widest range of things. And then obviously ourselves as, as doctors. So there is help there, but it does mean that person has to come forward themselves. Nobody will tell you. Nobody in the same way as your, you know, your sergeant or your company commander or your squadron commander will tell you. And it's a different mindset. So go and get that treatment earlier, I think, are the key messages there. And then obviously that's relating back to earlier, where get registered early with your GP, regardless of whether you've got an issue or not to discuss. Um, Kat, can you re relate to this personally? Yes. Yeah, so uh, when I left, I didn't really seek any medical help because I think it's odd when you leave um i wasn't medically discharged but i left with a diagnosis um when you leave i think what i would love everyone to recognize is that actually employers out with of the army are much more tolerant and acceptant of of uh your health than it's that you feel in the army so in the army you have you feel and you are you need to be fully fit and as um paul and jonathan is saying you get lots of support in the army with that when you leave there's a there was i genuinely had a fear of nobody's going to want to employ me I'm not going to get a job I don't want to tell anyone I'm not going to tell my GP because I want the employer because I wanted to work in the NHS to I didn't want to go through Oki Health and have to declare everything and then I wouldn't get a job and it wasn't like that at all once I understood the NHS uh, which was because I worked in the NHS they were much more tolerant and acceptant um of health conditions and it hasn't been a problem at all uh, and so that's really important that would be my message in this podcast that actually it's outside of the world is 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 more tolerant of employers and then when I did seek the medical help that I needed and the services it was great. Thank you. Paul what is the main advice you would give someone about to leave service? For me the the biggest thing would be 
that regardless of what you've got going on um, physically, mentally, um, homework, I can almost guarantee there's been another veteran who's been there um, and who's came through the other end. And, you know, as much as the military is a huge organisation and the veteran population in, in the UK is, 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 quite, is quite large, um, there's so much support out there um, for, for veterans to access, for families to access and for serving personnel to access. Don't be scared to, to reach out and ask somebody just for a bit of advice. The worst thing anybody can do is just suffer in silence because they, they think that nobody, either nobody cares or nobody nobody wants to help or nobody can help because I think all of those are um, can be debunked quite quite quickly. Um, there is a lot of people um, that want to support veterans and, and their families. You know, guaranteed there's, there's people just in their own networks who if they ask for support would give it. So, you know, the, the biggest problems I've seen a lot of, a lot of my friends and, and a lot of um, veterans I used to look after in my, my previous job was the ones that just locked themselves away you know, and, and that that's you know, that's not easy. Um, it's not easy to always come forward and to show vulnerability, but you know, that's something that really um you know, just being able to show that side is is it will just carry carry you in, in great stead going forward. Thank you, Paul. So don't suffer in silence. So Kat, over to you now. What is the main advice you'd give someone about taking care of themselves once they've left? Be proactive with your care. Take your notes straight to your GP, seek out, uh, understand what you need to do. So smears, mammograms, um, different tests, just proactively manage your care and and really accept that your staff sergeant's not going to be there telling you or your officer's not going to be there telling you you need to go to the med centre. You're not going to get that slip that says you need to go and get your teeth checked. That was the biggest one for me, remembering to go to the dentist that is being proactive with your health. And finally, Jonathan, to you, we have our final episode of the series is solely focused on armed forces families, but I just want to touch upon it now. For the families of service people, things can still be a bit tricky if you're moving around the country. Can the GP help with this? Yeah, very significantly. And I think I reflect upon some of the... uh, people I've spoken with where things have not gone as well as they should have. And frequently it's when um, their, their other half um, has been posted and particularly when they've needed access to hospital care and where the GP can be really, really helpful. Um, a bit as Kat was saying is, is actually bringing the notes to the GP and then the GP being the advocate. So if, for example, in, I'll make this up, but it, it makes the point that if, for example, there was a family moving from Salisbury Plain to Catterick and there was a family member who needed access, and it's often to specialist care, the incoming GP in Catterick, um, actually understanding that this was a military family, firstly. Secondly, that um, there is the Armed Forces Covenant. And thirdly, if, for example, you know they need access to, let's say, a, a rheumatologist, and some of the specialist medicines, which generally are prescribed by hospital consultants rather than us as GPs, that actually them taking the time and the effort to make the, the, the point to the hospital that actually, you know, waiting to get to, if you like, to the top of the list it, it is, is not really acceptable. Now, 
there are ways we often get around this. Now, we can often, as GPs, do what we call advice and guidance. So it sometimes means that I would write to the consultant and say, look, here's you know patient X. They've just moved from somewhere. They're on this medication. Could you advise? So sometimes we can short circuit it rather than actually needing a face to face appointment, because otherwise what happens is that that person goes to the back of the queue. And that's really not acceptable in any way. And it, it, it's a breach, clear breach of the Armed Forces Covenant. And actually, the vast majority of GPs are problem solvers. And they will say, actually, that makes good sense. It makes good sense for the NHS. It makes even more sense for the individual. So have the GP actually be your advocate to do that. And if, you, if you've done a little bit of research and you say, uh, in my area, for example, the major teaching hospital is the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, where it obviously has a lot of experience of military personnel. I, I sometimes get people saying, look, you know, could I go there, please? Or could I go to the Oswestry Hospital, which has a, a consultant, military consultant orthopaedic surgeon? And so actually bringing some of that information, could I go there, please? And then the GP picking that up and running with it is really important. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Some really fantastic points there. Be an advocate for yourself, but have a GP be an advocate for you as well. So on that point, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much to all the guests today, Paul, Kat and Jonathan. In episode four, we'll be looking at physical health. For those with ongoing health requirements, those leaving on a medical discharge and those who need simply to keep on top of their physical health. As usual, we'll be speaking to a mix of experts, service users and those responsible for influencing change. We hope you will join us. Goodbye. <laughs>